Can you bring me down just a little bit? It seems a little bit hot. So today's too brief biography is John Calvin. So yeah, it's definitely going to be too brief. John Calvin uh, is probably my uh, favorite theologian, certainly the biggest influence on, on my preaching and on our worship and in the, the, the Presbyterian circles that we're in, Calvin and the work in Geneva is a huge part of it. And so um, I'm going to start with, does anybody know Calvin's motto? His motto. It was not uncommon for theologians and just men even tradesmen of the, that time to have mottos. Be prepared to the glory of God alone. No, those are good. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I've got a di- little different version. I offer my heart to the Lord in sacrifice. And there, he, would, he would carry that with a, um, next to a picture of a hand that grasps a heart. And so I offer my heart to the Lord in sacrifice. And you see, you'll see why that was his motto as we go throughout this. So let's start here. John Calvin was born in 1509 in France. He, his father worked in the Catholic Church as the assistant to the Bishop of Orléans. When Calvin was ready to begin serious studies, his father at first wanted him to be a priest but then changed his mind and pushed him into law. And do you know why? Money, of course. That's always the reason a father would push somebody and a child in a direction, although that's kind of pathetic. Um, Pushed him into law because of financial considerations. Calvin studied at the best institutions in Paris and Orléans and in Bourges. Uh, The popular teaching of the day was humanism. And Calvin was rapidly embracing those teachings. Humanism today is a different humanism than back in the day, right? Humanism today is a system of thought that rejects religious belief and, you know, man is the center of everything. Uh, Whereas then, uh, humanism was a rediscovery and study of literature, art, civilization, ancient Greece, Rome, and uh, there was that, that call to go back to the sources, ad fontes, right? They were going back to the sources to learn uh, what the fathers had taught. And so Calvin was becoming a good humanist student. He would have made a great lawyer, a great professor. And that was his heart's desire, is to be an academic, to teach, to teach law. Um, he wanted to be that scholar, um, how did he become a Christian? Well, Calvin talked about himself very little in his writings. We do not have very much of his story, right? He, he does not talk about himself too much. There's really only one place in all of his writings where he does talk about his conversion. One place. Uh, in the preface to the, his commentary on the book of Psalms, He talks in a humble way how his life had been parallel to King David's in many ways. And and he he wasn't 
boasting in that. He was saying all of our lives, in a sense, if you read the Psalms, all of our lives parallel King David's, and that's why his Psalms uh, resonate with us, right? And, um, and that he was following in the footsteps of King David, King David. Here's what Calvin says in the preface to the Psalms about his conversion. In speaking of his change from law and into, pastorate, into the pastorate, Calvin says, To this pursuit of law I endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of my Father. But God, by the secret guidance of his providence, at length gave a different direction to my course. At first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery, to be easily extricated from so profound an abyss of mire, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind into a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I yet pursued them with less ardor. I was quite surprised to find that before a year had elapsed, all who had any desire after pure doctrine were continually coming to me to learn. Although I myself was as yet but a mere novice and a tyro, being of a disposition somewhat unpolished and bashful, which led me always to love the shade and retirement, I then began to seek some secluded corner where I might be withdrawn from the public view. And that is Calvin throughout his life. And God keeps thrusting Calvin right out front. Right? He wanted to retire. He was a bashful sort of scholastic type, sickly. And he just wanted to, to retire. But God kept calling him into the forefront to um, reform his church. Notice three things about Calvin's conversion. First, Calvin was obstinately devoted to Roman Catholicism and, and then calls that superstition. So he was obstinately devoted to superstition. He was trusting not in God but in his own power. Second, his conversion, he said, was sudden. God's calling is powerful, right? At times, the conversion of somebody is very sudden. At other times, it's a, uh, a slow enlightening. And third, what did Calvin say his conversion did? One, it humbled him. It humbled him. It subdued and brought my mind, he said, to a teachable frame. It made him teachable. He was leaving behind superstition, leaving behind the Roman Catholic Church, and he was now a teachable man. God does this to all of his children, right? Uh, you would think that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the heart would make someone teachable. And when someone is unteachable, it may be an indication that, um, that the Holy Spirit doesn't reside in that heart. Second, it placed, him in, in, it placed in Calvin a desire for progress in holiness, he says. He wanted to make progress. He wanted to delight in the Lord. He wanted to grow in holiness. And that too is, is the fruit of the Spirit in God's children, is 
holiness and works and fruit is born by the one who has the spirit in the heart. Okay, so how then did Calvin become a pastor in Geneva? He's studying law, he's in Paris, he's studying with, uh, with the, the, you know, this is the, the Harvard of, you know, of France. He's studying with the best professors, he's making progress, he's very talented, gifted. Well, shortly after his conversion, around 1536, he began, he, he began working on his institutes. So very quickly after his conversion, his main work that he's known for, he starts working on. He revises that all through his life, right? Expands it, editions come out with, uh, with more and more. But 1536, he begins that work. He would, um, the first printing was quite short, but made him a marked man. It made him a marked man. Okay, he is just declared for the Reformation, right? Uh, it was not safe to be a Protestant in France at that time. It was not safe at all. In, in fact, during his life, uh, Calvin, through the Geneva Academy, and it, where they trained pastors, would be sending pastors back into France to die. Right? They would go and and pastor and be killed. Um, so after publishing the Institute, showing his reformed colors, he was urged by others to flee from Paris. He did so, and by God's providence, though he was, he was headed toward um, Basel or Strasbourg, he was rerouted through Geneva. So, for some reason, there was, there was trouble on the road to Strasbourg, and he had to go through Geneva. Um, the, roads were, um, the roads were barred by troops. He arrived in Geneva, and he planned to stay one night. When the pastor of the church in Geneva, a man named William Farrell, heard that Calvin was in town, he dropped everything and sought him out. Right? So he obviously had Calvin's reputation preceded him. He had written these institutes, and there's the pastor of the church in Geneva, and he's like, okay, I'm going to seek this guy out. Farrell found Calvin in one of the great uh, moments of the Reformation ensued. This meeting between Calvin and Farrell is just one of the uh, great moments. Here's the scene as imagined by a biographer of Calvin named, uh, this is a great biography if you want a short, readable biography of Calvin. It's by a, a strangely named guy, Emanuel Stickelberger. Stickelberger, it's good. Okay, so here's how he, he, he gives like a dramatization, drama. Did I just say that? Sorry. Um, he dramatizes this. And, um, okay, so here's how it starts. Farrell blustered, you are not leaving. That's all off. There is much for you to do here. What do you mean? I am sorry, but I cannot remain any longer than one night. Farrell paid no attention. With great eloquence, he began to demonstrate to him, who was more than 20 years his, his junior, in what miraculous way the city had been won for the Reformation. His words bubbled over as he described this great happening. It was not long before the stranger learned of the tenacious struggle for the victory of the pure word. Look around you, Farrell said. The followers of Rome have been overcome. The abuse is checked. Now, however, we need you in order to teach the scriptures to the ignorant people who hunger after salvation. 
Calvin shook his head. To teach, I still want to learn. I intend to write several things for which I would not find the time here. I want to talk about these things with, with Bootser and Capito. Also, those who are in Wittenberg, I want to deepen my knowledge. Pharaoh only heard half of that. He interrupted him, impatiently shaking and turning his raised hand with outspread fingers. Leisure, learning, what is it, uh, what it is a matter of, when, when it is a matter of acting. Leisure and learning, when it is a matter of acting. Do you want to desert the Reformation to this city? I am at the point of breaking down under the load and you will deny me your assistance. Calvin responded, don't take it as ill will. My health is not the best. I need rest. Pharaoh went on, what rest? Nothing except death brings rest to the servants of Christ. To defend myself before council meetings, to withstand riotous crowds is not my nature. I do not have a fighting constitution. And these Genevans, with the motion of his hand, Pharaoh cut his words off. These Genevans, these Genevans, Tearing wolves they are, but is this a reason for you to leave me alone in the fight against this mob? Why should I be the one to help you? Pharaoh, do you really believe a Christian may give in to his timid heart so much that he can stay aloof from the battle for the kingdom of God? Once more, Calvin pleaded with wringing hands, disconcerted before the strong demanding look, in the name of God, have mercy on me, Calvin said. Let me serve him in a way that is different from your understanding of it. I cannot, you cannot. Jonah too thought he could not when the Lord called him. The storm began in the soul, listen. The storm began in the soul of the afflicted Calvin. More and more he resisted, opposing the coercive will of his visitor with his own equally strong one. Pharaoh was determined only to break all resistance, nothing else. He entered the battle with the certainty of reaching his goal. The obstinacy of his opponent drove the blood to his head. His eyebrows lifted in a threat. He forgot with whom he spoke and was no longer concerned with any formality. For the last time, he said, do you want to follow the call of God or don't you? Calvin gnashed his teeth, uncontrolled, his fingers twisted, his black pointed beard. No, no, no. A hostile glance struck Calvin. Now the preacher stood taller and his eyes hurled lightning. You are concerned, man, you are concerned about your rest and your personal interests. Therefore, I proclaim to you in the name of Almighty God, whose command you defy, upon your work there shall be no blessing. Let God damn your rest. Let God damn your work. Wide-eyed, Calvin stared at the small lips which had thrown this terrible curse at him. His whole body trembled. A, tre- a terrible clearness illumined him. It was not the man who stood before him that spoke, but the Lord himself through his mouth. He felt the presence of the invisible, seemed to perceive the hand of God which coming from heaven descended upon his head and rooted him irrevocably to the place which he desired so much to leave. As if under searing fire, Calvin's defiance melted and he offered his hand to the preacher and said, I obey God. 
Now that's a poetic recounting, but the actual event may have been even more dramatic than that. <laughs> I mean, Pharaoh was a man of formidable personality. Pharaoh was the man who, who married a 20-year-old when he was like 68. And Calvin was scandalized by it. Um, but here's how Calvin, in his own words, describes that scene. William Farrell detained me at Geneva not so much by counsel and exhortation as by a dreadful imprecation, which I felt to be as if God had from heaven laid his mighty hand upon me to arrest me. And after learning that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits, and finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought, if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken." Now think about that. Think for a moment about that. Calvin, Calvin had his heart set on a life of scholarship, books in a back room, publishing works in Latin for his whole life. That's what he wanted to do. And then God shook him up. And what strikes me about that account is there are very few men who have the courage that Pharaoh did today to say no, 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 no. This is what God has for you and to actually exhort somebody they know is gonna be helpful to them and say no and just lay on him, right? Try to get to the conscience. We need men who have that single-minded conviction that Pharaoh had, right? One that would drive him to make no compromises with Calvin for the glory of God. Now it turns out Pharaoh was very right about John Calvin. Right. Second, where are the men who have the humility of Calvin, who saw the hand of God in the words of a man? That's, that's what strikes me about what Calvin says. He says, it wasn't Pharaoh talking to me, it was God speaking through Pharaoh to me. God was halting me in my tracks. God was, gonna, was disciplining me to keep me off that road to ease and leisure. Right? And... To set aside his pride, his self-promotion, to hear God's word through this man he had never met uh, is quite extraordinary humility, right? And, and how, how often can you turn a man away from his, his strongest held desires to do something that's awful, which Geneva was, gonna, was going to be awful. It was an awful place to work. Every city was an awful place to work as, you know, Roman Catholicism and the Reformed faith and Lutherans were, were trying to um, jockey for position. Well, so what happened with Calvin in Geneva? Um, <clears throat> we return to the preface of Calvin's commentary on the Psalms where we get uh, this is where we get most of Calvin's autobiographical writing, almost all of it. We get three sentences on this next period of Calvin's ministry. Four months had scarcely elapsed when on the one hand the Anabaptists began to assail us, 
radical reformers, the Anabaptists, the, the uh, anarchists. Um, <clears throat> and on the other, a certain wicked apostate, who being secretly supported by the influence of some of the magistrates of the city, was thus enabled to give us a great deal of trouble. At the same time, a succession of dissensions fell out in the city which strangely afflicted us, being, as I acknowledge, naturally a timid, softer, of a timid, softer, and pusillanimous disposition, I was compelled to encounter these violent tempests as part of my early training. So, so he's realizing that God is honing him right here. He's, a, he's this retiring sort of weakling, and now he's a pastor, and like he's getting attacked, and God is, is preparing him. He says, and although I did not sink under them, as yet I was not sustained by such greatness of mind, as not to rejoice more than it became me, when in consequence of certain commotions, I was banished from Geneva. So after working in Geneva for just two years, both Calvin and Farrell are kicked out of the city. They're banished. What led to the banishment? Well, during the Easter celebrations of 1538, Calvin had a very difficult decision to make. Was he going to serve the Lord's Supper, the piecemeal of the Lord, right, when there was so much opposition to the leadership of the church? Or was he going to refuse? Was he going to serve or was he going to refuse? And here's what led uh, to the opposition Calvin and Farrell faced. The city council adopted Calvin's new confession of faith. Two, Calvin and Farrell desired for the citizens of Geneva to accept the confession of faith as well. Many were unwilling to do so. The Libertines, the Anabaptists, those whose hearts were still with the Roman Catholic Church, old school Genevans, right? And basically the anarchists said they would not accept the new order. Eventually, the city council, which had adopted the confession, came to oppose Calvin and Farrell themselves. Right? Politics. Things got so bad in Geneva by February 1538 that the council imposed directions about what songs people could sing. They were happy if the songs made fun of the pastors, especially. They placed a curfew on the citizens of 9 p.m. and told them not to have loud arguments about various topics. Then came Easter 1538, and Calvin and Farrell refused to serve the Lord's body, to, to serve the Lord's Supper to this divided body. They just said, no, no, you won't, this, you can't come, you can't come in faith. So the council decreed that Calvin and Farrell shouldn't take the pulpit the next day. Ha, 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 ha. What do you think Calvin and Farrell did? Well, the decree of the council did not stop Calvin. Stickelberger writes, At the appointed hour he mounted the pulpit of St. Peter's Church. To him who was the enemy of all kinds of excitement, meek in nature, who had spent a sleepless night, the short walk was bitter as death. Yet cost what it would, he obeyed God rather than man. At Easter the city must not remain without the gospel. During the sermon, he addressed the issue of the Lord's Supper. He said, Before all of you, we testify that it is not a question of leavened or unleavened bread which prevents us from celebrating with you the Lord's Supper. Because they had argued about that, the city and the, the church. 
Think of the strife, the revolt against the gospel, the blasphemy which prevails among you. Think of the manifold defiance against the word of God in the Lord's Supper. So he just gets in the pulpit, hits it straight on. Pharaoh preached elsewhere and it was not quite as safe. His friends had to intervene in order to protect him from an angry mob which surrounded his pulpit. (laughs) Calvin then preached again in the afternoon and things got ugly. The same thing happened to him as happened to Pharaoh. An angry mob surrounds the pulpit, wants to pull him out and throw him over the city gate. That night, the city council gave them 72 hours to leave town. Their ministry was seemingly over. And so they separate ways. Um, Pharaoh goes to, um, I think, Neuchatel, and Calvin goes up the road to Strasbourg. Okay. Strasbourg was the city he intended to go to early on before he got detained in Geneva. And he's like, okay, I like this. Here we go. And so we return to the preface of Calvin's commentary on the Psalms. Again, Calvin lays this out there. And this is what Calvin says of this time in his life. By this means, by his banishment from Geneva... Set at liberty and loosed from the tie of my vocation, I resolve to live in a private station, free from the burden and cares of any public charge, when that most excellent servant of Christ, Martin Bootser, employing a similar kind of remonstrance and protestation as that to which Farrell had recourse before, drew me back to a new station. Alarmed by the example of Jonah which he set before me, I still continued in the work of teaching. And although I always contended like myself, studiously avoiding celebrity, yet I was uh, carried I not know how, as it were, by force to the imperial, imperial assemblies where, willing or unwilling, I was under the necessity of appearing before the eyes of many. So what he's saying is, Bootser did the same thing Farrell did, said, no, you're a churchman, you're gonna teach in the church. And before he knew it, he's, He's teaching the word of God before the rulers of the the world. What happened during his time in Strasbourg? Well, he was mentored by Martin Bootser. I hope to get to him later in one of these um, sessions. He had a congregation of 500 French refugees that he pastored. Uh, He became their pastor. He took on a settled, not a pioneering ministry, right? That was a settled church. He came and he pastored it. Um, He preached four times a week. He taught the scriptures. He conducted debates. So he was in the thick of this this Reformation work. He wrote a brief treatise on the Holy Lord's Supper, where he said, We confess with one accord that when, according to the institution of the Lord, we receive the sacrament in faith, we become partakers in reality of the true body and blood of Christ. How this happens, some are able to explain better and clearer than others. Above all, however... It is to be emphasized in order to exclude all material conceptions that one must lift his heart on high to heaven. One cannot bring the Lord Jesus down so that he becomes confined in transitory elements. Right? So that's Calvin's statement in this whole debate. All that's going on in the church today is a battle between church and state and 
how Christ is present in the Lord's table. Right? Martin Bootser, Martin Bootser, who Calvin is with at this point, was the guy who traveled to the, the colloquy of Marburg and tried to get Luther and Zwingli on the same page. Bootser was like the mediator between those two men who were on polar opposite extremes. Zwingli denied any sort of presence in the meal. He just said it was a memorial, something, it was a, just remembrance, right? And then you got Luther carving in the table, this is my body, right? And he puts forward that consubstantiation view. And then Calvin, notice it's us being lifted up into Christ's presence, Right, where we partake of his body because of our union with him, that organic union that we have with Christ by the Spirit. And so this is the main argument. Um, I mean, they're fighting for their lives against the civil authorities, but they're also arguing amongst themselves about the Lord's table. And they would never get, um, they would never unify. And so he, um, what else does Calvin do there? He writes an exposition on the Epistle to the Romans. He married his wife, Idolette de Boer, who was a widow and of an Anabaptist. She was Anabaptist, I believe, and um, widowed and was a, a sweet, loving wife to Calvin. She had two children who lived with her and Calvin. Uh, Calvin had converted her and her husband from Anabaptist sentiments to the Reformed faith before he died, before um, her husband died. Pharaoh married them, and um, Calvin said of his wife, she is not only good and honorable, but also handsome. <laughs> Which is what I'd say of my wife, too. Um, they only had nine years together, and he would uh, write to his friends after she died that uh, she was a precious help to him. The only child they had died within a few days of being born, and Calvin called that his severe wound, uh, something that he, he never could get over. All right, so there he is in Strasbourg. He's doing the work he's, well, he's not doing the work he wants to do, but he's there. Uh, serving the church of the French. And um, <clears throat> he lives there for a little over three years. And then Geneva is like a mess. Geneva is just a mess. It's out of control. And so the Genevan civil magistrates come to Calvin and say, would you please come back? Would you please come back? Um, they wanted him back. Initially, this is how Calvin viewed a return to Geneva. He said, I would rather submit to death a hundred times than to that cross on which one had to perish daily a thousand times over. <laughs> he did not want to go back there, right? His flesh did not want to go back there. Now we return to the preface of the Psalms where we get this autobiographical information. And this, was, this is what Calvin now says of this time of his life. Necessity was imposed upon me of returning to my former charge, contrary to my desire and inclination. There it is again. Right? Calvin is doing things that are contrary to his desires. Why? Why would anybody do that? When have we ever done that? Right? He wants to... He does not want to disobey God, right? He, just, he, he wants to be used of God. 
He want, doesn't want to disobey God, and so he's even willing to do things that he doesn't desire. The welfare of this church, he says, it is true, lay so near my heart that for its sake I would not have hesitated to lay down my life, but my timidity nevertheless suggested to me many reasons for excusing myself from again willingly taking upon my shoulders so heavy a burden. So he's, he's struggling. This is him struggling with his own sinful nature, right? He's, he feels timidity and, and cowardice, and, and, and he, he knows what it means to go back to Geneva, that it means being, uh, it means constant attack. At length, he says, however, a solemn and conscientious regard to my duty prevailed with me to consent to my return to the flock from which I had been torn. But with what grief, tears, great anxiety, and distress I did this, the Lord is my best witness. And many godly persons who would have wished to see me delivered this painful state had it not been that, that which I feared and which made me give my consent, prevented them, and shut their mouths. Right? So, Again, he's just stating the fact that his conscience is bound by God. And he was willing to go back here. And, and I, if you know anything about what happened from that point on, Calvin had a hard life, very hard life. So what happened during um, this time in Geneva while they were away? What happened in Geneva before they came begging? Well, the exile of Calvin and Pharaoh did not bring about the hope for calm in Geneva. The city chronicles during those three and a half years that followed reported stormy events. The opponents of the reformers put in their place four straw men, weak preachers, who blindly followed the dictates of the ruling party and therefore lost all respect. So the, the, the civil magistrates put in some cronies of theirs who just towed the company line right? Probably preached politics all the time, whatever the city council needed to convince the people of. However, over the course of the three and a half years, the city council slowly became more reformed, more conservative. And uh, here are excerpts from a few letters of invitation Calvin received to come back to Geneva. Triumph, come quickly, brother, come, come, that we may rejoice in God our Redeemer. Don't linger. Come to build up and to gladden the church, which lies in misery, grief, and sorrow. Don't say no. You would resist the Holy Spirit, not men. <laughs> Remember the fruits waiting to be harvested in France. The Genevan church is important. No mortal man is able to direct it with such force as wisely and as ably as you. Um, Calvin initially resisted those pleas, then received a letter from Farrell commanding him to return. We don't have that letter. But Calvin wrote this back. He said, you, you have been of unspeakable distress to me <laughs> with your thundering and lightning. Is it necessary that you make me so bad and almost renounce our friendship? Calvin relented. He wrote this to Pharaoh. He said, if, if I had a free choice, I would prefer to do everything else in the world that, uh, than to do your will. But I know that I am not my own master. 
I offer my heart to the Lord in sacrifice. There's his motto. After I have overcome my soul, after I've overcome my soul and control it, it shall be subject to him alone. Calvin then would spend the next 25 years of his life serving the Lord in Geneva. On his return, he draws up a church order, a set of rules for governing the church. Now he can flex his muscles. Now he can tell the civil government what they're going to do as a church and what the church is going to do. Um, he devised a catechetical system uh, to train the children. He, um, primary and elementary schools were established. He started the uh, Geneva Academy for the training of pastors. And uh, during this time period, sometime in there, maybe the 1650s, or 1550s, uh, Knox came to Geneva, spent about a year in Geneva ministering to some English refugees. And Knox said of Geneva, it's the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on the earth since the days of the apostles. And he was committed to expository preaching without notes five times a week. <laughs> oh, man. Five times a week. Um, well, that's, I mean, there is so much more. If you read Calvin, read his sermons. Read his sermons. His sermons are not, are, the amazing thing is he wanted to be an academic, and you see his academic work in the institutes as it needs to be because that's a systematic theology. But his sermons that he preached to the people are just straightforward. They're just straightforward. He, he clearly just wants to get to, the, get to the heart of the people. He doesn't get complicated in his sermons, and therefore they're very readable and very helpful. So if you're going to read anything by Calvin, read his Institutes, and, which is you know, generally packaged in two volumes. It is a systematic theology. It was expanded over his life, and it just contains the... the quintessential expression of Reformed theology. And then read his sermons, uh, any sermons you can get. They're still translating sermons from the French into English and publishing those books even now. Um, last thing I'll, I'll leave you with is, is this. He, he was very sick his entire life. I think he had, he just had a weak, a weak body. And you know, antibiotics wouldn't come along for another 450 years. <laughs> so, I mean, you just got to remember, everybody was sick during this time period. The, the suffering of the body was different than our level of suffering that we know. And even still, there is great suffering today. So, I mean, think about that. He, he was very sickly. He constantly had kidney stones. He, um, I think he had something like Crohn's disease or something. His his gut was always bad. He had severe migraines uh, that would put him out of commission at times. And yet, if you go, Theodore Beza, who followed, was, was Geneva's guy after Calvin. He's the guy who followed up Calvin. Theodore Beza came to Geneva to uh, run the Geneva Academy and then took over as the primary pastor and the head of the company of pastors. He wrote an, a biography of Calvin, which is excellent. It's short, readable, 
really good, um, Theodore Beza, B-E-Z-A. And he, he, at the end of it, chronicles the last few years of his life. And it's, he is bedridden, and he's translating his Latin works into French. He's bedridden, and they, to get him into the pulpit, pick him up in a chair and walk him from his house over to the pulpit in the church. And he preaches. When, he's, when, he, when he has such severe gouts, he can't walk. Right? He had a rheumatic gout that the last, I mean, all through his life gave him pain. Severe pain. Um, who's had gout? <laughs> it hurts. Oh, man. And he had it continuously. And, um, and so, but, but there's a beautiful scene at the end of his life where Calvin, before, before the Easter, they, they served communion on Easter, and all the company of pastors would get together and examine one another so that they were ready to, to serve the Lord's table. Right? So they would get in there and they would examine each other on their theology and their character and, and these things. And this, so near the end of his life, one of those last Easters, they're in his bedroom. And he talks to them for several hours and he just, he takes one man's hand and talks to him and then he takes the next man's hand and talks to him and goes through all the pastors in the room, right, addressing them individually. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the last things he did also was he was, he was taken in his chair to the city council he, was, he, he got out of his chair, he climbed the stairs into the city hall, and he went to the civil magistrates, whom he had fought with his entire career, and he went and said, and he, he went and blessed them and thanked them for being so kind to him and allowing him to be pastor of Geneva. You know, he goes, and so there, there are all of these poignant moments that Beza writes about. Um, but you have to, I, I can't get into it. They're too brief. Uh, but pick up that book and read about the end of his life. And he worked. He worked till a few days before he expired. He just worked and worked and worked and worked. You know? Um, his preaching did come to an end. Uh, he could, could no longer preach at the very end of his life. And, um, oh, there's one other fascinating thing. I think it's, of Ca- I think it's Calvin that um, he, that last sermon he preached before they kicked him out. When he came back three and a half years later, he picked up that next passage and just kept going on from there in the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> yep, yep. So, um, Calvin's writings, why do I like Calvin? Why is he an example to me? Because... Uh, because he, was, he was, had a pastor's heart. And he had to fight his... He had to fight wanting to withdraw. And, and yet he pastored so well, and he had such influence. I mean, he's writing to the king of England. He's writing to the king of Poland. He's, he's, I mean, he has such an, he's writing to the Anglicans. He's writing to the, you know, the Reformation that's t- happening in Germany. He's, he's, he's constantly corresponding with this, and he just has his hands in everything. And so not only is he concerned about Geneva, 
He's concerned about the church broadly. But go read the consistory records of Geneva. Go read the elder board minutes from Geneva. They're published. And it's fascinating. I mean, they're dealing with stupid sheep. Right? You can't yell at your wife like that, you know? Get in here and, and, and repent. And you, you can't, um, you know, what, what is this affection you're showing for another woman? You should have affection for your wife. And wh- why are you guys always fighting? People in, the, in the, the house next door have heard you guys fighting. What is going on here? I mean, just dealing with rubber meets the road, sinful sheep, right? Like us. Like us. We all need that help. And so you just see that Geneva was this uh, example of, of pastoral ministry that uh, I think should be uh, imitated uh, even today still and because, because it follows the commands of Scripture. All right, we got to stop. That's all I got, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for exhortations that have fallen in our lives and changed the, our course. We thank you for speaking through men. And Lord, we thank you for the examples in history of those who feared you and so uh, chose to deny themselves and, and work for you. I pray that we would examine our own hearts and let go of our own desires that we hold and that are holding us back and that we would uh, desire what you desire. Lord, we thank you for uh, your mercy to your church. We thank you that you raise up pastors and teachers and even scholars, Father, to lead your church. Uh, We need them, Father, and we pray that you would work revival in our churches. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.